And what we as DEI leaders, and indeed those who are allies to, to DEI, we have to always uh, stand up for what's right. I have um, full of these old expressions, but one of the expressions I say is, there is never a good time to compromise your values. Hi everyone, Alejandro here, and welcome back to How to College First Gen. Since Black History Month is right around the corner, we want to take this month to highlight Black first-generation students' undergraduate and professional journeys. Today, we invited Safar Brooks, the Chief Diversity Officer at InfoBlocks. Safar has spent 36 years in corporate America and 20 as a leader in diversity, equity, and inclusion, more commonly known as DE&I. He is a first-generation student who will share his journey to becoming a leader in DE&I and talk about what it means to build a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion as a first-generation student. Thank you for joining us, Afar. Thank you, Alejandro, for having me. I'm excited about it. Before we dive into today's topic, let's back up a little bit. Could you tell me a little bit about your background, where did you grow up, and where did you go to college? Sure. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so I was raised in Memphis, Tennessee, the American South, and I uh, came of age in the late 1970s, went to college in the early 80s, and uh, I went off to Fisk University, which is uh, one of the nation's oldest historical black colleges. I think it's the third oldest in the country. Decided that uh, I originally wanted to be an attorney and was uh, studying to, to be a lawyer, and along the way had uh, uh, if you will, the bug to get uh, involved in business and was uh, actually recruited by IBM to do a summer internship. And that really opened my eyes. Uh, as you mentioned that uh, in my family, my father had come out of the uh, military area, the Vietnam era, and had worked in, in, in uh, baking as a baker. And my mom had done various roles and, and later became a school teacher. And so to the opportunity to go off to college and to stay in a dormitory and and all those things, that was that was quite new for us at the time. I had one cousin, actually, who had done so and a year earlier. And so the excitement of going off to school, meeting new friends, uh, learning about new experiences and new backgrounds and people who had done different things was all new and exciting. So once I got to IBM and participated in a summer program, an internship program with them that they had at the time identified diverse talent, diverse uh, students to introduce them to careers in, of all things, ironically, technology, it really opened my eyes to perhaps new options and new opportunities. And, uh, and that led me to a career actually at the time at Ford Motor Company and uh, spent 35 wonderful years in the automotive industry doing a, a myriad of different things. And it sounds like attending Fisk University and HBCU was a really pivotal moment in your life that affected your career beyond. Could you tell me a little bit about what your undergraduate experience was like attending at HBCU? Yeah, uh, you know, it was. Uh, Fisk University uh, literally changed my life in ways that uh, I could not have even imagined. Uh, I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and, and, and the era that I grew up in had sort of the, the uh, unfortunate experience of being the place where Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. That happened to be the year that I was uh, about to head off to uh, kindergarten. So my formative years in, in school were, were in a community that had been really divided along racial issues. Uh, and certainly with the assassination of Dr. King, the community was very raw. And so in those sort of 
days where you're going to be in a kindergarten or a first, second, third grader, and you're learning your alphabet and you're meeting people, you also are understanding, although you don't, you don't appreciate because you're too young, you understand that, that this environment you're in, uh, there's something that's just not quite right. You know, I have a five-year-old grandson and he's very aware when something doesn't quite work or when something is a bit off. And so I was sort of that five or six-year-old in those late 60, early 70 periods where you could sense that something wasn't quite right. Well, after I got my high school diploma, I wanted to really sort of get my collegiate education and going to a historical black college as an African-American, uh, it meant something to me, understanding more about the culture, understanding more about sort of the contributions that African-Americans and indeed blacks around the world have contributed, learning about art and literature, meeting different people who had different lived experiences than I had. And, you know, it was just it was just eye opening. The professors that were there, you know, Fisk is a relatively small school, about 1500 or so kids. So it was not uncommon to have a class with six, eight people in the class and a professor who may have worked 30 years at NASA, who was now teaching you a specific element of engineering or mathematics or a writer who may have actually written with somebody or known somebody like Langston Hughes or Claude McKay, you know, a, a famous Fisk alumni is Nikki Giovanni, the famous poet. So, you know, that era, the early 1980s at Fisk was just a, was really a, an amazing time, uh, historically speaking, where we got to meet so many wonderful people and they exposed me to new ideas, new concepts, and things that I just didn't know were possible for people who look like me. And that led me, as I said, on to uh, ultimately getting into corporate America and following a corporate career. So before entering corporate America, I can imagine the excitement of even going to a four-year university. Being the first in your family to walk across that stage after those four years is an extremely thrilling moment, not just for yourself, but also for the people who came before you. Could you talk a little bit about what it felt like to walk across that stage? Wow, that's a, that's a really great question. And, you know, it's one of those sort of uh, fond memories you have that, that sit in the recesses of your, your mind that, uh, that shape you in so many ways. Well, when I think about that May day in uh, 1986, and I look across the aisle, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but my grandmother was there, and my grandmother meant a lot to me. She was the granddaughter of, of slaves uh, herself. My grandfather long since passed away, but had not been there. And to see my father and to see my mother and to see cousins and uncles and aunts and the hope that was in their eyes about what, you know, what had been achieved. Uh, to be clear, I had family members who had uh, attended college and even had a couple of family members who had gotten degrees. But the, the notion of going away to college and, and living on a dorm and spending four years and getting a diploma, you know, that being your full-time effort and not working and going to school part-time at nights and things like that, that just had not been done. I had one other cousin, uh, Linda, who, who had graduated the year before. But you know what that meant for our family, and, and to think about my grandfather, who was born in 1884. And he was the grandson of a slave and he was a sharecropper himself. And my grandmother, you know, who was born in 1906 and, and was born before, you know, women had the right to vote and, and born in the segregated South. And, and what was happening in that era for black people and the absence uh, there, too, for the things that they were able to do. The, the most basic things, you know, the public accommodations laws that hadn't been passed yet for 
you know, the decency of using public facilities or getting jobs or, you know, even in the military, you know, being respected for who you were as a people. And I, and I just remember sort of the, the weight of all of that as I was coming across the stage that we had sort of entered this new space. I had gotten to study with the likes of Dr. L.M. Collins, uh, who was a contemporary of, uh, of Dr. Du Bois, who knew Dr. Du Bois, I should say, and who knew people like County Cullen and Claude McKay and, uh, and Langston Hughes. And just to, to realize that this dream fulfilled, if my grandfather could have lived to have seen that day, uh, it would have been a day that I, I think that he was a very, he was a man of faith, a, a religious man. Uh, it was a day that he prayed for, for his own children that he didn't get to realize. You know, he came of, of age during an era of lynching, you know, in the segregated South. And there was a story in the family once how he had to leave a community uh, for fear of losing his own life because he happened to be someone who stood up against discrimination and against uh, wrongdoing. Or to, to watch my grandmother, who was part Native American uh, and had to adjust the injustices. She was a very fair-skinned woman, but who never not identified as Black. And then my own mother and, and, and her journey to going from that experience to getting a career in education. It was just a very proud moment for my family, proud moment for me. But I understood the, the significance. I understood the gravity of the moment. I understood who I was and what I represented. And since then, I'm very proud. I've got uh, <coughs> two brothers and, and one sister and both my brothers went on. Actually, my sister and both my brothers all went on to law school and are doing different things in the law these days. And I've got cousins now who are doctors and uh, cousins who are in business and own their own companies. But I think that was a moment that began to, to change what was possible and to be the person to, uh, to be at that sort of that intersection, if you will, as a family that says through education, there are other options to us and, and, and new possibilities. The gravity of that moment, I was grateful for. I, I recognize that I'm blessed. Uh, and I recognize that uh, a lot of people contributed so that I could have that moment. And today, uh, I'm very honored that, uh, that that moment meant so much to my family and my grandmother. She's passed away maybe 20 years now. But that moment, I have that picture. I still have that picture with she and I on the lawn of Fisk University to understand that this was just not even this was not even an idea that she could have conceived of in the, the 19 teens. Uh, my grandfather could never have conceived of this moment to see their grandson fulfill those uh, those dreams. Yeah, that was a pretty good day. It sounds like walking across that stage, you realize that this moment isn't just your own. This is a moment for your parents. This is a moment for your predecessors, your ancestors who worked tirelessly to making sure that you had these opportunities, not just for yourself, but for future generations beyond. And that's a really big responsibility to hold. I felt the same way whenever I graduated from college a couple of years ago and I saw my parents' faces. And I think that was a really humbling moment for me because it made me realize that a lot of first-generation college students we really are our parents' wildest dreams. We're our ancestors' wildest dreams. And it's really special to see them share this moment with you. Yeah, you know, indeed. There, there is a, an old expression that goes to he much is given, much is expected. And when you think about the, uh, the immigrant experience, to be sure, being undocumented, and if you sort of juxtapose that to 
the segregated South, being an American citizen in your own country, but understanding that there were spaces and places that were uh, not available to you and that at risk of life, frankly, uh, for, for daring to, to, to challenge that, uh, to watch my own mother and my own father come of age before the Voting Rights Act, but to, to be out you know, protesting and marching so that those privileges would, would come about and understanding that it may not happen for them. It just may not be, they may not be the ones who were the direct beneficiaries, but they understood in, in, instinctively the impact of what this could be for their families. And so now, of course, I was able to get my degree and and move on. And so my children uh, didn't see that as an option that was not on the table for them. And my grandchild now comes of age in an era where that's just a part of who we are and and, and our family and who we are. So, yeah, there is a a gravity of that moment uh, that really does grab you. And for those who have graduated, we respect everyone who had an opportunity to go on. It, it It is an accomplishment in and of its own right. But for those who came of, of, of age or who had to come amongst the challenges that were also occurring environmentally, that moment, the gravity of that moment does not get lost on you. For a lot of first generation students, entering the professional world can be a very daunting experience. I know it was for me whenever I graduated college, trying to figure out what was my next move and who I could ask advice to. Both of my parents are blue collar workers. My mom has been cleaning houses for more than 10 years and my dad works at an industrial soap making factory. So it's difficult to ask them for career advice, not only because I'm a first generation college graduate, but I'm also a first generation professional. I'm figuring this out on my own from the ground up. Could you talk a little bit about what it was like entering your first professional job out of college and how did you decide to start your career there? So as you were sharing the story about your family and, and their experiences, my father baked bread at Kroger Bakery uh, for the better part of 40 years. My mother was a public school teacher uh, and she worked in the inner city schools in the city of Memphis. You know, at the time she got into schools, that, that, that was the only option uh, available to her. And uh, they had no experience in corporate America. They had no advice to offer me about what I would expect in corporate America. I, uh, I tease and share, I have shared this story before. Uh, the day of my very first day on the job, I went to Ford Motor Company in Omaha, Nebraska, and someone came to shake my hand. Shaking hands was not a concept that we did in, in undergrad. You know, it just, that concept didn't exist. We knew how to shake hands. But just the idea of a handshake as a part of the business ethos was just not something that I was familiar with. And so I, I, I was reminded that I was sort of an other, if you will, in the, the corporate context. And I had to learn, learn the language. I had to learn the, uh, the, 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 the sort of the, the way things were done. Uh, you know, this predates, you know, laptops and, and cell phones. So I couldn't Google anything. So there was a lot of trial and error. Uh, you know, giving public presentations. You know, in our in our community, the space that often you learned was at the church, and that's where you learned to present yourself, or to speak, or to be in a in a in a club within the church, or to be in a in an auxiliary, and, and that was very defining for who you were. And then, of course, at an institution like this, where you had to nurture and the care, where the professors would give you that that experience, 
but yeah, it, it, it was it was not something that was innate. It wasn't something that you just sort of knew. There was some trial. There was some error. Uh, I'm glad that video don't, doesn't exist from that era. I'm glad there weren't social media from that era because I suspect some of the things I did in those early days from uh, doing my presentations to developing uh, you know, my ideas and to how I conveyed them or how I communicated them probably wasn't exactly the way others had done it. I had to come to it. And fortunately, I had some great mentors, some great supporters, some great advisors who trusted me and gave me the opportunity to, to learn, but also stayed with me in a space of failure. Failure is a part of the business equation and is necessary because once one fails, one learns a little bit about it. You learn the aegis of whatever is possible in that idea, and it allows you to course correct. I had a, an old supervisor who was a, very much uh, an inspirational leader in my, my career, and he said, the answer is never no. It's just no for now. And so what you learn over the course of time is how to get to yes or how to change whatever you needed to change to, uh, to affect the outcome you chose. But that, the, the moral of ultimately what this guy's name is Leo, ultimately what Leo was saying is you don't give up just because you may have a setback. You learn from the setback, you evolve, and then you push through to the next uh, to the next step of whatever it is you are trying to achieve. So you have a lifetime worth of experience working in DEI. When did you decide to make the transition to a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion? What role did you have in DEI, and why is this work meaningful to you? Yes, I feel like it dates me. Thirty six years is is a lifetime in a career, to be sure. Uh, having you know gotten into corporate America. 35 years, actually, in, uh, in 1986. And about 17, just about half of that was, was leading DEI. For me, uh, in the earliest stages of my career, uh, having grown up again in, in Tennessee, and this was one of the values that my mother uh, always pressed through my family, my, my siblings and I, and she always said, wherever you go in life, try to help somebody else. Remember somebody helped you along the journey. So try to help somebody else. So I guess you might say that I was attracted very, very early in my career. In the earliest days, I was uh, the chair of something called the EI Committee, Employee Involvement. That was a precursor to ERGs in the, in the mid-80s. But it was this idea that there were those who were underrepresented, underserved, whose voices were maybe not as loud or as, 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 as often sought as others. And I was a bit of a champion for that. I wanted to be able to sort of to be a, a vessel for those conversations to occur. And so somewhere in the 90s or so, I got involved in various employee committees and activities and representing the voices of different employees in the organization. This, again, is in an era where, you know, there were still, we weren't still well represented, particularly in the auto space. I mean, you know, it was in the 90s that we were still sorely underrepresented by women in the workplace. And so you would, would not be uncommon to be in meetings where there was one or fewer women uh, that had a voice at the table. And, you know, I always sort of said women have been 50% of the population since the beginning of time and certainly represented uh, the vast majority of the purchase decisions, purchase intent, 60, 70% of purchase intent. And so the absence of women voices certainly did not benefit our organization. We would be better when more voices are heard. So I would try to be a, a spokesperson in that regard. And then I got a chance to actually lead a diversity department uh, of my own. 
And that then was a key opportunity for me to connect the business case of DEI to the business. You know, I've always said diversity is the right thing to do. It, it is the right thing to do for a lot of reasons. It also is good for business. It's an and, not an or. It's the right thing to do, and it's good for business. The marketplace is reflected by different voices and different ideas and different lived experiences. It helps us with creativity. It helps us with innovation. It helps us with understanding our consumers. It helps us in identifying uh, talent that has a lot to, lot to offer, and it certainly helps us in our business process in developing the best business ideas when we have diverse ideas you know, at the table. You know, somebody once said, we never knew how good baseball could be till everyone was allowed to play. And so being sort of having grown up with that voice in my head where my mother said, don't forget someone helped you along the way. And then understanding that oftentimes diverse voices are less heard in the enterprise. And then having an opportunity to, to lead a diversity organization that connect diversity to the overall business goals of the organization really was a full circle moment for me, going all the way back to those early days uh, of having left high school to go off to college at a black college and understanding what our, who we were and what our voices were and how to uh, convey our voice in the workplace. And then being able to then ultimately toward the sort of the twilight of my career, being able to lead a global organization in that same regard has been uh, an, an amazing journey that I couldn't have I couldn't have imagined all those many years ago. Diversity, equity, and inclusion isn't a major that you could pursue in your undergraduate studies. So it can be a little bit difficult kind of breaking into this industry. As you were building out your career in diversity, equity, and inclusion, did you have any mentors that helped you guide you along the way? Yeah, you're right. There's no, there's no, well, there are careers that one can do in, in various activities that are that 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 do have uh, a diversity sort of connection to them but the the title or the degree of diversity equity inclusion i'm not aware that 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 title exists there's all kinds of programs in women's studies and urban studies and and working with you know populations and so forth and so on organizational behavior and hr i had a lot of leaders uh, a lot of mentors who trusted me very early on in my career who believed in me. In fact, the very first person I ever worked for was a fellow named Jim Ludlow. Uh, and he was at Ford Motor Company, since you mentioned Ford. And one of the things that Jim said to me is that he was excited to have me at the, at the organization. And he was really excited about my contributions. Uh, and he was unapologetic about the fact that he welcomed the fact that I was a, a, a diverse person at the organization. Now, I was the only a person of color in that in that office at the time, certainly the only person of color in the sales force, and that my boss was really signaling to me very early on how he valued this this commitment to diversity and this diversity of thought that I could bring to his organization, and I felt welcomed, and I felt that uh, through that I could bring my whole self to work, and that I and that he understood that I had a contribution to make even though my contribution might have looked differently and come from a different lived experience. Further, as I got on in my career, I met some wonderful people, one of whom I continue to be connected to today, Jim Gwaldy, who uh, himself was an executive at the company. This, again, was at Ford the earliest days. And, you know, was someone who sort of inspired me to start thinking like a leader, start thinking bigger, 
uh, about what my capacity was and what my potential was and what I could do. You know, for me, I was just me. I was just doing the work I was doing. But someone who believed that I had more to offer and that my voice could change and shape others was was like, wow. And then later I went on to work for another fellow who inspired me to think that I actually could make a meaningful impact. And today I have the great fortune of working for a woman named Carolyn Gracie in my current company as Chief Human Resources Officer. And every day, Carolyn is excited about what we do and motivates us to do more and try things and is okay with things that don't look like the past or aren't something we always did before. And we are innovating and we are trying. And she uh, is one who often says she's a learner. So she's open to new ideas to be to be taught or to learn or to participate in something new. So, you know, having uh, allies, having support systems, having folks who trust you, and importantly, those who maybe don't agree with you, uh, allows you to sharpen your thinking, sharpen your ideas. Because for you, your ideas are good, and you know what your ideas are, and you, you, you know, you're committed to them. But you also need to understand that you have to go to the marketplace to bring that idea forward. And so you have to learn how to compete for the whatever that resource is, time, money, talent, people, to get your idea implemented. Because a great idea without implementation is just a dream. And we got to bring that dream forward. We need dreams. Dreams shape what we can do. They take us outside the four corners of what's possible today and force us to keep looking in the future. But we have to be able to convert that sort of dream, that notion into practice. And having leaders like Carolyn for me today are so important and our CEO, Jesper, are so important, lest these ideas don't get executed. I want to touch on something that you said about having people in the room who don't agree with you. Was there a time where your work in DEI was not accepted or celebrated in corporate America? And how did you navigate that? You know, diversity, equity, inclusion is at the end of the day about culture change. It really is about culture. And it's also about bringing both the organization's commitment to its core values to its business practices. Just because an organization hires certain people that meet certain criteria in the hiring process does not mean whatever the baggage that that person brings in the outside world will stop at the, at the, at the, at the water's edge of the company. I always say sort of if a person, you know, didn't like pets before they joined the company, just because the company somehow, you know, welcomed people to bring their pets to work didn't mean that we're going to change that for that person. And it's certainly a, a simple analogy in that regard. So what I have learned is, yeah, you're going to meet people along the, the way who are not committed to whatever the idea is that you are, are sharing. That is not uh, unique to diversity. Uh, it is just a part of the business process that you're bringing different people together who have different ideas. And sometimes those ideas are not shared. What we as DEI leaders have to do is I always sort of say, go back to your core values. Who are you as an organization and what is it as an organization you espouse to do? And that I could not think of a single example in any business model where diversity can't make it better. I can't think of an idea where diversity can't make it better. To bring new thinking uh, affords you uh, access to innovation, to have top talent. If you only are 
sort of uh, recruiting for certain uh, sort of person's experiences without those lived experiences, you can't, you know, innovate, you can't make the process any better. Having diverse supply chains, you know, give you access uh, to sometimes lower costs because they may oftentimes come from smaller enterprises with lower cost structures and that they will bring lower cost to you. But the challenge to that all is that there are sort of the norms, the traditions, the way things were done, the sort of the, the club, if you like, of the way it just always was. And what we as DEI leaders, and indeed those who are allies to, to DEI, we have to always uh, stand up for what's right. I have um, full of these old expressions, but one of the expressions I say is, there is never a good time to compromise your values. And if we value differences of a thought, if we value having the best people, and that means reflecting the communities in which we work and do business and creating a space where people can bring their whole selves to work. If they're LGBTQAI, uh, or if they are, are females, or if they are from different cultures, or they speak different languages, when they feel comfortable in the workplace, the research overwhelmingly, compellingly says they're going to perform greater. And that performance will accrue to the benefit of the organization in achieving its overall business goals as well. So yes, you're going to have naysayers. You're going to have folks who aren't per se identified with some of the principles of diversity, equity, inclusion. Our role is to not compromise our values, to make clear what we're doing and why we're doing it and how it fits within the overall business model and to be a space where perhaps there is genuinely a lack, there's a gap of understanding, there's a gap of knowledge, and that sometimes, sometimes what may happen is those people will learn something new that they didn't know before, and through that experience, they grow, and their growth can contribute to the growth of the company. And sadly, sometimes people can't get there. And if they can't get there, as I said in the beginning, there's not a time to compromise on the values. It may be it may be a wake-up call for that individual that this organization and its values, if they don't align with that organization, with that individual, then just maybe, then maybe they need to perhaps move on. And in uh, the data show that as well. It's unfortunate, but the reality is we will have some who may not get there. And if they don't get there, then as an organization, we also have to help them find a place that's right for them because we shouldn't compromise our own values as an organization. Some might consider you a veteran of DNI. You've seen this industry change and grow over recent decades. And especially after the murder of George Floyd, corporations worldwide had a wake up call to address systemic injustice within and beyond their industries. How have you seen this field evolve and where do you see it going? What are some of the obstacles in the profession? You know, the, the summer of 2020 uh, was, I think, will go down in history as a defining moment in, in the United States and, and indeed perhaps globally. Not only did COVID-19 cause a sort of a, a reckoning and a, a sort of a re-understanding our, our own frailty as humans, but with the the unfortunate and tragic murder of, of Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis, it reminded us all 
that we still had some work to do. Not everyone's experiences uh, were equally uh, enjoyed. You know, as a, as a black man myself and, and witnessing, uh, sadly, that, that nine minutes or so uh, of a tape uh, of, of Mr. Floyd, I could identify that that could have been me, that it was could have easily been, I have a son who's 31, it could have is easily been my own son. And his pain through what he experienced, and that so often that we find ways to, di to divide ourselves by surely the, the color of his skin led to the suspicion that perhaps he could have done something wrong. You know, the, the benefit of the doubt didn't exist for him on that day. You know, through a lot of pain, sometimes uh, we, we evolve, we grow, and we learn. And uh, if there was a moment that Mr. Floyd's tragic murder afforded us, it afforded us a moment, a space, uh, a time to reflect as a society on the, the real lived experiences that some parts of this society face, that, we, we, that, that justice was not colorblind, that there were those who experienced life in a very different way. And one of the maybe moments in my life that I was, was very pleased with is that corporate America, often, quite, quite you know, broadly, stepped up to the moment and had an introspective moment and began to assess the things perhaps it had taken for granted uh, within the offices and boardrooms and policies and practices and procedures of so many uh, companies around, including our very own. And those moments began to challenge the suppositions that had just been held that somehow that, you know, since we don't have some of the, the vestiges, the, the artifacts of of a past era, the, the signs, you know, the water fountains only or where people couldn't apply for the work or the words that were used or the epithets that were called, that somehow that we had transcended or we had a black president, so we must be okay. But I think that moment caused us all to step back, caused us all to take a real hard look and look around the table, much like I described in those early 80s when we looked around the table to see who was sitting at the table and what our practices were and, and did it align with what we, what we said were our stated values. And we began to make change. My grandmother, God rest her soul, always had a, a statement, a, a saying that I've kept with me all my life. And she said, and it was really a statement about hope. And she said, I believe that today will be better than yesterday and tomorrow will be better than today. I believe that today will be better than yesterday and tomorrow will be better than today. And I think that came from her era of having hope. We, we believed that things can get better, that we have to keep moving forward. We really don't have an option of giving up. It is in all of our shared interests when we can find ways to bring us together. We can find ways to resolve our problems. We can find ways to, to coexist. This is one planet. We are one sort of one uh, community of humans. And if we are to coexist, if we are to get along, if we are to grow, we need each other. And, and I think what Mr. Floyd's moment reminded us is that as a society, as a community, that we may have taken for granted the connection we have and our association one to another. And so, yes, I, I, I'm hopeful that tomorrow will be better than today. 
am hopeful that the legacy that Mr. Floyd uh, left us all is one that reminds us that we can't take things for granted, that we can't assume things are what they are, that we have a duty, indeed an obligation, to continue to test our assumptions, to continue to test our processes, to look for ways to bring us together, to ensure that voices are heard. We assume that sometimes we hear voices, but we don't know if those voices are heard by all equitably, that's the E and and DEI, and that just because uh, you know, something isn't overt doesn't mean it's not happening, that it's real. And so, yes, it was a moment that so many CEOs stepped up, so many others stepped up and began to reflect. Now our opportunity is let's not let this moment pass. Let's not lose what this moment was at the altar of expedience or convenience. Let's remind ourselves that it has always been so. My friend Bernice King, Dr. King's daughter, uh, said one time at a speech, I heard her say that it is the obligation of every generation to preserve the gains of the generation to pass for the generation to come. We are our brothers and sisters keepers, and we have a duty to ensure that each generation to come realizes the, the potential, its potential, and that we protect the gains that we have, uh, have we've already achieved, uh, lest we not, than we are, as her father said, subject to chaos or community, and we would like to choose community uh, in the course of that journey. Sorry for the long-winded answer, but it's, a, it's an important inflection in our society that, that those of us who didn't come of age in the early part of the civil rights movement, or before that, in the earliest movements, in our society, we were tested. And, and that test is one that history will still yet define, but it was inspiring to know that people of goodwill stood up and decided this is a moment. And in this moment, we will be defined as what our values say we intend to, to represent. I really appreciate you mentioning that quote about protecting the gains of past generations. It's very indicative of the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's important to note that this work isn't over whenever we have representation by numbers or some other measurement. This work is ongoing because there's always more room to create a culture that is more diverse, equitable, and inclusive. Well, you know, the corner phrase, when you know better, you do better. And there may have been times as a society, as a people, there were things we did not understand and we didn't know. We assumed that that were happening. Uh, the immigrant experience in America. A lot of people remember Brown versus Board of Education, which was a seminal moment in education in the 1950s that afforded at least the desegregation of, of classrooms. But what a lot of people didn't know is that that case originally started with the Mendoza case in California, where a group of migrant workers or, or, or parents were fighting for similar educations for their own children as well. So again, understanding one's history, understanding that place in history and space and its uh, ability to have shaped the people is important. But when we understand more, and then we understand what those people's experiences are, then we, I believe in the 
and just have a natural sort of sense of, I believe, in the betterment of people and, and the betterment of, of humankind, that we'll do better when we understand the mistakes we've made. My last question for you is, what advice would you give first-generation students aspiring to pursue a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion? Well, the first advice I'd say to first-generation students who uh, presumably we're talking about that are uh, in the collegiate level and, and, and perhaps are about to graduate is I congratulate you for your own accomplishments. Your accomplishments are significant. And, and the gravity of that moment of what you have achieved and understanding that many people are watching, many people are watching and are rooting you on for success. So to honor that moment, to understand where you are in that moment. If you are so led to a career in diversity, equity, and inclusion, I, I, I recommend a, a few things. First is become a student of this space. Understand what this space is. I sometimes say when I'm giving talks on diversity, particularly at the collegiate level, is I say people don't see diversity until they don't see themselves. So if you're in a room full of women, women and you happen to be a woman and, and the issue of what's going on in terms of something else uh, may not immediately identify with you. What I mean by that is make sure you step outside your own comfort level. If you're a Latino and you're thinking about Latino issues, that's awesome and, and, and solve those. But understand the interconnectivity to Latino issues to maybe LGBTQ issues as well. If you're black and, and there are issues that are involving uh, the black community, connect with those who are not black and understand their perspectives because you know, in that sort of the idea that if you're going to solve any problem, you need to understand both sides of the argument. Uh, you know, any good lawyer wants to understand the opposition's case as well as her own case. So understand where others are coming from to the best you can. That doesn't mean you have to believe what they believe, but at least understand what has led to their ideas. Get different resources. Try to look at other resources. I read a lot of things and I read from people who I agree with and people who I don't agree with. I am uh, I subscribe to uh, you know a lot of newsletters so that it helps me evolve my thinking. Sort of get out of the echo chamber. Remember I said you don't see diversity until you don't see yourself. If you're only in your echo chamber, that's what you're hearing, that's what you're seeing. Give yourself permission to hear the other side of the argument and it will help shape your argument frankly uh, when you're going forward. And it also may give you pause on things you assume you knew. Find an organization that aligns with your values. Oftentimes, go straight to the websites. And whatever they say they are is one thing, but what they do is another thing. So go to the websites. Go to their social media pages. Uh, talk to folks you know who have had experience with the organizations. Do they align with what they say? We won't always get it right. We're going to miss it sometimes. We're going to say the wrong thing one day. We're going to do the wrong thing. We're going to uh, sponsor the wrong organization. That's to be expected. You know, failure happens. Mistakes happen. But what do they do once they made the mistake? Did they learn from it? Did they evolve? And if they learned it, if they evolved from it, that's instructive as well. So check their websites out. Check out who they are as well. And be unequivocal. There is never a good time to compromise your values. If you see something that generally doesn't feel right or look right to you about what an organization is saying or doing, test the question, ask the questions, test the system, see what the system says. If the system says that's just the way we do it around here, or if the system says, oh, you're too thin skinned, or the system says, oh, you're making much ado about nothing, it may not be the right organization for you. 
So, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is about culture change. It is about understanding uh, how we can connect the organization's values and resources and principles to reflect the population uh, writ large. And how does one do that? We all have different ways to approach that. Not all companies are going to be big consumer companies where people are going to be in line to buy the burgers or sodas or sneakers or whatever that is. And there are going to be other companies that do other things. But how does that company present itself to the marketplace uh, and are they connected to their values? And then finally, what I would say is be comfortable with who you are. If you are a gay man, if you are a Asian woman who uh, is first generation, if you are living in a different community or a country, if you're the first and only person of color at that organization, be comfortable in how you got there, you know, your experience, your, your contribution. You don't have to be the other. You don't have to change to be like them. I talked earlier about how I learned things in corporate America and how I evolved when I understood some of the practices of corporate America, but I never forgot who I was. I am a proud black man with a, for me, a rich family who believed in me, who trusted me, and a lot of others, black and none, who invested in me. And I never lost sight of that. I never lost sight of that. And I never didn't want to be that. And I wanted to be able to help others along the way. Uh, so ask yourself, why are you interested in this space of diversity, equity, inclusion? To be sure, to address the issues of underrepresentation is one aspect of it, but there's another aspect of it as well. And that aspect, well, maybe uh, to help others evolve and learn and your business to achieve its highest potential. Because what we know is when we are all included, we are stronger and together we can achieve our best selves. So that's what I would, would offer uh, anyone who's coming into that space. Zafar, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability, sharing your journey with us and to see where you're at right now. You dropped so many gems that I'm sure our audience will have huge takeaways from. So thank you. Well, thank you, Alejandro. I really appreciate you. I've learned a lot from you. You're an amazing young professional and you're your, your future is so bright and your star is so bright that you will shine and you will offer light and inspire others to go forward. So I applaud you on, the, on your, your forward thinkingness that this topic was something that uh, would be of interest to others. So many congratulations to you, sir, and best wishes in everything you're doing as well.